Welcome to the Atlas Project. It's a new world. To navigate it, we need new maps. Each episode, best-selling author Chris Katana and Scott Jones saw 50,000 feet above the immediate headlines in politics, economics, science, and society. The Atlas Project aims to reveal the big picture of where humanity is headed and the choices we all need to face. Chris, it's been a couple weeks. You've been traveling. You were were you in New Zealand twice? I was in New Zealand twice, and yeah, I, I'm so sorry that we didn't. How many people? To, uh, how many people in the UK would that be a normal response for? Have you been in New Zealand twice in a month? I mean, I would think that that's an elite group. I would guess it's an elite group, or at least an exclusive group, meaning size wise, in any place except New Zealand. I mean, there are other adjectives I would add to that list. It's a bit insane. It's you know painful on the body. It's definitely disruptive to you know all the good habits that one tries to maintain in one's life. Um, but uh, yeah, the last I mean, we got we got too much to to sort through. Um, but uh, like, so I was in New Zealand. I was at this amazing conference on circular economy, uh, giving a keynote there. And and it was about bridging bridging between indigenous worldviews about the economy and kind of European sort of Anglo-Saxon North American you know the majority worldviews about the economy and um, that was mind blowing. I'd love to tell you more about that sometime. Um, I was uh, I gave a talk to uh, the Ministry of Defense here in the UK last week about artificial intelligence and. Sort of how do we how do we uh, create leaders and how do we create conversations in society about the implications of AI? That was that was super cool. I mean, it was totally going into the lion's den um, and not being an expert on AI, but you know, having some some pretty well thought out views about you know where where we need to be going in terms of how we think about the technology. Um, that was a lot of fun, and uh, I just got back. Just got back uh, this morning from sitting down with uh, my book publisher and, and just like downloading you know, like kind of the five book ideas. There's just so much happening in the world right now, Scott, that, uh, you know, thank God we've got this uh, this regular conversation between us. Because I think, you know, if we couldn't sort of vomit some ideas out on a, on a pretty regular basis, it would like my brain would just explode. I'm, you know, it just... Sometimes you can't sleep at night. Like, oh my god, we have to think about this. We have to talk about that. So you're you're the grounded one, my friend. Give us give us structure. Give us direction. Where are you at? Hi. Hello. Hello, sir. I yeah. I don't <laughs> Let's know. start I, with that. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I, happy I, Easter. Happy Easter. It's uh, Easter by the time. way. Still, thank you. Uh, the other uh, the other not to keep rambling, but the other interesting holiday. Not really a holiday, but milestone coming up on the second of May. 2019 is the 500th anniversary of Leonardo da Vinci's death, and so we're we're recording this before that date. But I, I'm I'm expecting um, a torrent of sort of da Vinci related stuff to pop at the beginning of May. Most of it's probably going to be poor and uninsightful. We might have to have a conversation about. Da Vinci's lasting impact on humanity, which was actually gigantic uh, in ways that probably most people don't think about. But I was anyway. I was listening to I maybe it's Daniel Robinson or somebody giving this lectures on Western intellectual history, and he was he came to Aristotle and he said it was it's as if you could imagine 
a group of extraterrestrials looking down at the human race, kind of muddling along incrementally and, and, and one step forward, two steps back and said, let's just give them a being. And they dropped Aristotle on the planet. And it, you, I mean, Da Vinci mm. probably less so, but in that vein, right? I mean, some, sometimes individuals are, are integrated well, polymaths. Hmm. Well, that's very interesting. So, I mean, you know Aristotle and his impact on civilization so much better than I do. But I, w- I think of him as someone who, who, who brought, he sort of brought directed thought into our consciousness in a really powerful way. And, you know, prior to Aristotle and kind of his generation, you know, our, our consciousness was, was kind of trapped in mythology, you know, these, these kind of, you know, celestial stories about balance, about heaven and earth, uh, you know, earth and sky, night and day, um, natural cycles and revolutions. And, and they were, you know, they swirled around us and shaped our reality. And Aristotle was one of these people who somehow had the genius to step outside of that and to say that, no, 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 to to this sort of swirl of surrounding myth, we can we can penetrate it with, you know, directed thought, me the subject upon an object, and we can know things. We can create knowledge through uh, the conscious purposefulness of our own thinking, which, you know, it, it all is like, what? But, but in a world before that was possible, that was this extraordinary breakthrough yeah no i think yeah i think they keep he is the climax of or the high point of that starting with the pre-socratics thinking like all right can we do better than homeric myth to understand reality you know and and Mm. starting with Mm. pre-socratics going on you know people like thales and heraclitus and democracy these people and then you know socrates plato and then i mean in some ways it's said that you know all of western history is a debate, Western intellectual history is a debate between Plato and Aristotle. And on lots of things, that's not completely wrong, especially in, on politics. Like, I mean, if you're thinking political theory and social organization stuff, I think that's not overstated. But yeah. So that's interesting. So if you, th- if you think of, so here's then the relationship between Aristotle and, and da Vinci. Is if you think of Aristotle as kind of the, the culmination of you know, this new power to understand reality, then uh, da Vinci, he was the culmination of uh, a new power to represent reality. Because what, you know, maybe his most important contribution to sort of the, the world that came after da Vinci was his power to represent sort of the physical world on the two dimensional page sort of linear perspective. And it, I mean, it sounds like we all learn this in grade school now, so it doesn't seem particularly profound. But in a world before it was possible to accurately capture a, an idea in the physical world, let's say, you know, uh, a drawing for a machine you want to build, uh, if you couldn't capture it on paper, then you couldn't transmit that idea on paper. You needed to build a physical model and take the model around and show it to people. Um, but, you know, there's a reason that uh, you know, people today, and you, every now and then you see it in the news. It's the reason that we can pick up, um, you know, Da Vinci's drafting designs for machines and and make them today. Uh, but you couldn't do it for anyone anyone's drawings before Da Vinci. 
yeah was that he captured so accurately the idea on paper and and in a time of the printing press of course the 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 the, the impact of that technology to capture uh to represent reality on paper uh i mean it went as far as as the printing press did and you know so much the industrial revolution you know the 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 machines that powered it would not have been possible without the this innovation in in representing reality in drafting accurately um that leonardo who sort of grew up in this place in italy where where um you know history was really valued because they still used roman roads from sort of you know 2000 years before and where um artistic skills were really valued that he was this person and it wasn't just him but he's the one we remember who kind of combined the arts and that that looking at how do things work into a new a new power which was to 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 draw the world in to draw the three-dimensional world accurately it's 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 i suppose you know one of the key technologies that enabled european civilization to kind of go forth and conquer space uh the 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 capacity to make sense of it in in a whole new way I'm pretty sure that uh, precisely no one else is yeah. going to talk about that impact on the five on the 500th anniversary of his death. But you know, as I look at history and the history of ideas, especially, I, I actually think that you know that was the that was the one that really mattered, one that we still work with today. Yeah, it's interesting because as we reflect on Western intellectual history and thinking of the, the fire at Notre Dame, and it, it's just this interesting tragic phenomena but the way we experienced it collectively at least in the west through cnn and other you know the 24-hour news cycle and being able to sort of look at the flames you know watch yeah, it's impossible not to watch it burn yeah and it's just such an arresting thing and what's fascinating is is the the awkward kind of reactions it provoked and ross doubt that who's columnist in the New York Times, kind of a center-right columnist, had this op-ed yesterday talking about these tensions that you see in the public discourse about it. And he talks about how this idea of a... He's talking about how a lot of sort of secular elite talked about remaking Notre Dame in a more cosmopolitan, secular, multicultural, multi-faith-friendly symbol in Paris. And he said, he says, the idea of a Christian West is particularly forcefully rejected, but even more banal terms like Western civilization and Judeo-Christian, once intended to offer a more ecumenical narrative of Euro-American history, are now seen as dangerous, exclusivist, chauvinist, alt-right. And yet there is also a way in which liberal discourse in the West implicitly accepts part of the terrorist premise, this sort of terrorist, recent terrorist attack, by treating Christianity as a cultural possession of contemporary liberalism a particularly Western religious inheritance that even those who no longer really believe have a special obligation to remake and reform. With one hand, elite liberalism seeks to keep Christianity at arm's length to reject any specifically Christian identity for the society it aims to rule. But with the other, it treats Christianity as something that really exists only in relationship to its own secularized humanitarianism, either as a tamed and therefore useful chaplaincy or as an embarrassing in need of correction, uncle. And he talks about how you see this in the public discourse. I mean, Ben Shapiro, who's a cantankerous conservative 
American commentator, but he he tweeted out like that in the light of the the day it was burning. Like it, this is tragic, and and unless we take more seriously the Judeo Christian philosophy and intellectual history it symbolizes, you know, we 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 don't really fully appreciate the tragedy. And people just laid into you know it just became this huge sort of you know there was a kind of multicultural discourse you know around Notre Dame being a symbol of white you know white cultural dominance and all this stuff and then people of course coming back on this this is too woke too PC it's fascinating because <laughs> it, it 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 is the this is something that's not going to go away anytime soon right this uneasiness with the West's intellectual, spiritual, philosophical, cultural roots, right? I mean, that's just, yeah, it's ambivalent, you know? I mean, so, so what's, if I can, if I can sort of jump in and interrupt you there, I mean, the question that's sort of screaming in my head uh, around Notre Dame is, and and this seems to be at the heart of all the debate you described, what is it a symbol of? And uh, that's, I think, the, the base question. What is it a symbol of? And also then, what does it symbolize to rebuild it and how we choose to do it? And, you know, on, on, the, one, on the one hand, you would think the first question, I mean, it should be a very simple question, it, it, the Catholic cathedral. And yet it has also stood on that place for, was it 1,200 years or so? Or 800 years. 800, built yeah. in 1200 or built yeah. in? Yeah, okay. Thir- uh, yeah, in the thir- yeah, 13th, 14th century, 13th. Okay, century? so yeah, so the 1200th. So, and, and, and having stood there for so long, it has also become a symbol of the city. Apparently, it is also a symbol of the French nation. And so it has, you know, it is, it is many symbols. It is many agendas. And I think that's what, you know, in, in a sense has got, got society stuck then that therefore uh rebuilding it symbolizes many things and and i i guess then the question becomes do we have to answer these questions do we have to solve these problems before <laughs> i mean so so macron says you know we're gonna we're gonna get it rebuilt in five years but you think of it, it it could take more than that time just to answer the question you know what does it mean if we do that <laughs> <laughs> let alone, and therefore, how should we do it? I mean, and I suppose the safest way is just to rebuild it, I mean, as brick by brick exactly as you can, and and in that way, not answer, but just return to the question. So having having rebuilt it, what does it symbolize? And it had been, <laughs> there have been reconstructions in the past. It's not as if it was eight centuries sort of pristine i mean it had right, there right, right. It, it's been like any tradition evolving architecturally you know as things but it's really interesting one of the there was a, this pew poll in america and this there was this the response was basically a majority of christians in america feel persecuted which it's really interesting to me in that you know i don't i wear a christian label i get paid to be a christian i mean i'm glad i don't get paid by my piety or how good a christian i am because i would that would be bad sliding it's, scale. It's, a, it's a sliding yeah, scale. Yeah, exactly. That is, uh, <laughs> you get less money the more pious it, you it, are. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but, but Ross Douthat in this essay, he's kind of dealing with this. Like, on the one hand, it, it, you, you, the, the sort of left of center discourse is like Christians, white privilege, you're the most privileged. Even though it's funny because Christianity today, the place it's growing, 
it's majority a non-Western, non-white faith. It's quickly become, you know, places like Africa, Asia, Latin America. It, I mean, it's, it, but I, but you know, what's interesting is Douthat points to this tension where you, where it, one, it, at the same time, one can be sort of out of step with the cultural elite, right? And feel intellectually or, or culturally marginalized at the same time being part of of a group, at least in North America, where you're pretty materially and culturally well off. And, that, and it's just an interesting tension that gets at the tensions of uh, questions of identity, right? That, that how you, how you negotiate all these and, and usually, you know, the, especially in the, in, in, with all these forces and factors that are in tension, usually there's a quick emotional response, which is over simplifying. <laughs> you know, but, uh, because I, I, yeah, I mean, I think it is a complex, uh, because I think that, that some of the conservative commentators are right in that, that this is a sort of, Part this sort of you know th- th- we talk about the medieval synthesis or whatever where you have this kind of philosophical theological scientific artistic kind of synthesis that created a lot you know and 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 refined in the Renaissance and 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 is the seedbed for much of Enlightenment liberalism and that sort of stuff like and yet it you can't go back and we, we don't you know we don't live in yesteryear and we are in a different place and how do you you know how do you live in realistically with integrity in the midst of all of those realities? It's not easy. There's, um, I don't have any answers to these questions. I know this, this experience of being persecuted, I suppose it also, it must relate somehow to, um, our sense of, um, I I'm I I I don't I don't have a well thought out answer to this, but the first thing that comes to my mind is um, our sense of 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 righteousness, in the sense that I mean, in order for me to feel persecuted, I also need to have uh, I, I guess a strong sense of um, of of righteousness about my religious faith. I mean, I. I and it's interesting too when people it, but, like in America say we're persecuted, which it's almost always. It's, uh, the only people I hear from are white Christians, right? It's it's generally not well, and there there really are Christians in the world who are persecuted. I mean, what, recently well, we saw some killed. I mean, right. and and people. I mean, you know very well in China. I mean, it, it, which is one of the places where where Christianity is is thriving, and since it's growing exponentially, and it's persecuted. Very expl- like that's real persecution, <laughs> right? No, th- and and that and that's really helpful because what you've done, you've helped me clarify sort of what what I think is worth teasing out and reflecting on. So, what is the nature of persecution? Um, and if, if we're not in uh, a state where where it's a quite blatant nature, I mean, you're sort of you're you know you suffer physical consequences of attempting to practice. Uh, you know the symbols and rituals of your religion. You're put in jail, or you're you're beaten, or you're or or you're you're killed. I mean, this is, I think, um, obvious persecution. Um, but that's not the only form of persecution. And I suppose that, as you say, sort of you know, white Christians, the persecution. Uh, I mean, if we're if 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 we're trying to unpack it, is it a sense that um, that like the cultural elite are asking me to be embarrassed about my religion 
And that's the nature of the persecution. What I, I, I think that is it. I mean, I think in, in the United States, that's it. I mean, it's, it's, it's that, that, exactly there's that. There's a sense that I, that somebody wants me to be embarrassed yeah. about the, the status of my faith and my, and my beliefs. And that, that is a, is an aspect of the society I live in. I, I take as offense or violence against my right to, and, and then how do I finish that sentence? My right to be applauded for my particular faith or my, my right to be free from, um, you know, because this is sort of the, you know, the, I guess the, a lot of the modernization project of the last 50 years has been to question everything. Right. So is it is it sort of the persecution, the fact that that religion has now come under question and, and this I don't want to be questioned? I don't know if I'm really adding a lot of value to this conversation, but I think that you've stuck your finger right on this. And if we could just keep sort of prodding a bit deeper. Yeah. And I, I think it, emotionally for people and, and this is and let me just play my card. But I, I generally I have friends that articulate these sentiments and I generally don't I have a tough time identifying with them because I don't experience that. Like I don't experience persecution. I don't experience, you know, I, I don't ever feel like being a religious person that identifies as a Christian in any circles is really, I don't feel at all marginalized, but, but I don't want to minimize the sense that, but, but I do think what's going on is people seeing all these people mourn this destruction, of this great piece of beauty and saying, well, mm. The tradition I'm a part of, and this was not just Christians; it was Jews in America who were saying these kinds of things. That this, this, you know, you, 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 you kind of scoff at us or marginalize us, and yet you lament this symbol, and and that that symbol is us. I mean, I, I think something emotionally is going on there that that is just intriguing. As you're talking about being in New Zealand and indigenous, you know, versus versus sort of modern Western economic theories, and and as we, you know in the West, hmm. try to live in, in a multicultural pluralistic society. All these, these, these are not, these emotions are not going away. Like, like well, how, how we grapple with things that like Aristotle, Da Vinci, Notre Dame, you know, our, our, our tradition and how we, how we have an expanding inclusive tradition that is in, you know, what does Chesterton say that democracy uh, is the, or that, that tradition is the democracy of the dead. Or he says, you know, tradition hmm is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. To the sense in which, the, the, how do we have an inclusivity for the future and the past? I don't know. It's an interesting question. Yeah, I, I, I also, I mean, I, I suppose if, if recent history, especially our political history, has, has retaught any lesson, it is, um, it is how, how powerful... Um, how powerful and particular um, our notions of identity can be, um, and and I, I I think that where where sort of the um, you know I, I I don't know if it's right to call, think of it as 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 liberal because it's been such a different wor- word in uh, in the American context than in kind of pretty much the rest of the English speaking world. But but anyway, um, you know there 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 is sort of the um, the extreme, the extreme push of rationalism is to, 
is to sort of deny the reality of these mm, sort of semantic and and ontological parts of ourselves mm-hmm. you know things that that are real even if we can't scientifically measure them and how big a part of our reality that that actually is it's interesting that you mention um uh, a sort of um you know indigenous worldviews as maybe maybe one way of getting inside the mind of someone who's you know of, of say a white christian who feels persecuted um like i wonder if it's what if it has to do with a, a sense that that there should be some things that aren't um that aren't open to um rational argument I mean, and I, and I suppose one way to think about it in, in sort of Western tradition is that there was a time where, where religion was sort of a category apart. You know, you practice science over here and, and economics over there, but, but you know, we, religion was uh, maybe less open to the same types of um, – uh, sorry, I, I, I completely dug a, a hole for myself. I don't know how to get out of it. Well, I mean, I think on one level, in, in, in the hot and before Christendom sort of declines, it it's open to intellectual criticism because it needs to be the intellectual grist for lots of things, right? I mean, part of Galileo, part of the persecution of Galileo wasn't really about the Bible; it's about Galileo overturning what they thought were scientific norms, you know? <laughs> which was mm. part of you know a long evolving scientific tradition, you know that 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 the church safeguarded, you know. I mean, it was one of those things that that. But, but now it's in a different place. It's really interesting. Uh, as I was thinking about Notre Dame, I, I came, I went back and reread this passage from Thomas Merton's The Seven Story Mountain a few times. And, and Merton, there was just an article in the New Yorker about him, or New York, it was New York Times, might have been New York Magazine or something. I'll, I'll link to the show called Secular Monk. And, and Merton, you know, was one of these sort of quintessential spiritual pilgrims of the 20th century who lots of people outside of Catholicism kind of revere, and he was a guy that was a convert, an adult convert. I was born Catholic and didn't grow up and really raised in the faith. And he, as a kid, he goes from France to America and then back to France. And in 1925, as like a 12-year-old, he's coming back to France. And he writes this later, which is so amazing. And I don't know if it helps our conversation at all, but I, every time I read this, I cry. So I'll try not to cry. Maybe this will be the one time I won't cry, but I'll make scary faces while you Exactly. He says, how did it ever happen that when the dregs of the world had collected in Western Europe, when Goth and Frank and Norman and Lombard had mingled with the rot of old Rome to form a patchwork of hybrid races, all of them notable for ferocity, hatred, stupidity, craftiness, lust, and brutality, how did it happen that from all this there could come Gregorian chant, monasteries and cathedrals, the poems of Prudentius, the commentaries and histories of Bede, the Moralia of Gregory the Great, St. Augustine's City of God and His Trinity, the writings of St. Anselm, St. Bernard's sermons on the Canticles, the poetry of Cabon and Sinwolf and Langland and Dante, St. Thomas's Summa and the Oxiense of Don Scotus. How does it happen that even today a couple of ordinary French stonemasons or a carpenter and his apprentice can put up a dovecote or a barn that has more architectural perfection than the piles of eclectic stupidity that grow up at the cost of hundreds of thousands of dollars on the campuses of American universities. Mm-hmm. When I went to France in 1925, returning to the land of my birth, I was also returning to the fountain of the intellectual and spiritual life of the world to which I belonged. 
I was returning to the spring of natural waters, if you will, but waters purified and cleaned by grace with such powerful effect that even the corruption and decadence of the French society of our day has never been able to poison them entirely or reduce them once again to their original and barbarian corruption. And yeah, I, that's very moving to me because he looks at this sort of, you know, when you looked at Europe in antiquity, it did look like the backwater, you know, and, and this place where the dregs of the world were. And then through people like St. Patrick and there's other, you know, there's these, there's this incredible civilization that develops, you know, in light of, uh, and with many sins, like every civilization, you know, it's always built on the backs of others tragically, but it, it but there's something that is, remarkable about that and yet like every family system it has its dysfunctions and patterns that are that are we're not proud of and we want to sort of break out of and i think all of this stuff is brought to the surface by seeing those flames and 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 because there's we i do think we feel like we're in a liminal space and it's just hard to navigate and negotiate it is it is an extraordinary i suppose challenge to the modern mind to you know watch you know one of the um sort of best and and most venerable symbols of christianity burn and then be confronted with all of the um all of the aftermath the, the varieties of behavior that that ensue and the questioning of the motivations of it but but yeah ultimately this question of given the given the complexity of you know both given both the you know found foundational and complex role of Christianity within you know uh, France but also Western civilization um, how do we rebuild and 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 how much of present day um, conflict and exploration of just the place of religion, the place of faith within uh, modern society, do we represent in in that rebuilding? Yeah, one of the highest and, points I, of that, I mean, an amazing thing, like somebody pointed out, like two black churches in Louisiana, I think it was, that were... I, uh, victims of arson and people raised like a million and a half dollars to rebuild those churches. And I, I, I thought, wow, that's, this is beautiful that somehow in the flames, there were, there was attention drawn to something, you know, an act of violence and destruction that, that people, you know, that, that, that one symbol is burning, shed light on violence and, and and destruction that needed redressing you know and, and and it's a beautiful thing and i hope that somehow the sorting out of things creates more stories like that i mean it'll be very interesting to to um be alive through the rebuilding of notre dame because you know that it's going to be an ongoing symbol of these questions and and one wonders if there's going to be um, you know what the what the cultural implications, sort of what the conversations in France and you know and 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 more broadly are going to be as the rebuilding takes place. Um, you know, and will it will it? I suppose the 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 hopeful um, possibility is that it 
it it brings it brings into sort of a little less confrontational and a more positive dialogue uh, between those who feel persecuted and uh, by 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 the practice of let's say Christian faith and and between those who think that um, you know religion is the root of all the problems in society and and I I just wonder if you know maybe maybe both sides are you know uh, are are guilty of kind of overplaying their hands in 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 that debate because it seems that it seems that it has become you know in the US as well a kind of um a, an aspect of 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 political and cultural division yeah uh, and 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 the reality of religion is much more it it's it's role in society that way than you know my personal practice of that and and so you see for example as a as kind of a way of you know politically complicating the narrative of religion you have you know someone like uh, Pete Buttigieg running for sort of the democratic nomination for president who um you know sort of and I I know nothing about him never met him but you know appears to wrap himself in his religion. Yeah, and... and uh, but also, yeah. I'm gay, and so I'm speaking to you, sort of, uh, Mike Pence, and I'm, I'm, I'm complicating sort of your political ownership. Right, right. In, fact, of, in many ways, he's saying that, that, that the inclusivity people are... That, what, that part of the country is looking for, that he's saying Christianity is the ally of it, not the enemy. And it's, that's an interesting kind of... Where, where will the legacy... Hey, I have to run because I have to pick up somebody from the airport. But whatever happens with the rebuilding, we should be the first people to live podcast from the new Notre Dame. Oh, I love it. Okay, we'll we'll set it up. I'll work. Uh, I'll work some of my relationships here in Europe, and we'll. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure we'll be the first ones to think about it. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, my friend. Do the chat. Thanks for listening to the Atlas Project. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line or send us a message on Facebook. If you really like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes and write a review. It helps so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks for listening and facing the new world with us. <laughs>